I'm like, okay, now I've got a dilemma as an official. Do you wait or do you tell him? I'm like, well, Friday in a cut, I can't, I haven't got a chance to wait. You know, you're an official. If you interject yourself into their world, then, you know, beware. Welcome back to another part train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Seven Singer. We got Mr. Matt Cermak here. His mic is broken, so he's literally holding it like he's on stage. What's going on, my man? It's good to see you. Part train's rocking and rolling. I'm excited about this episode. You guys are going to love it. Um, In case you're new, when you're on the par train, guys, I'm sure you've been on it. Even for two holes, you made two pars in a row. You're feeling good. Golf, the hardest game in the world, feels easy, right? Our mission is to understand why. So we can apply these lessons of riding the train on and off the course, make the hard stuff seem easy, and help you get better. With interviews from PGA Tour pros, best-selling authors, CEOs, mental coaches, and rules officials slash senior tournament directors like Stephen Cox today, you will get the motivation to keep chugging and finally learn how to enjoy the ride. Is that fun? That is actually very fun. It's fun. We learned a lot today. But before we get into our our great episode, we got to hear from our friends, Ev. Tell us about the latest signing that Roback Apparel made on tour. So for all that you don't know, Roback uh, is... uh, has partnered with Wesley Bryant, PGA Tour player, great player, um, which is pretty cool. You and I are wearing their stuff every day, but you know they're growing bit. They're growing and they're growing fast, and pretty cool to see them get uh, the first PGA Tour player, Wesley Bryant. So, guys, more proof in the pudding. This stuff isn't just for your average 15 handicapper. It's for the best players in the world. Stuff's yeah. great. Yeah, and the founders are amazing. They're really great people. You feel good when you buy stuff from them. I want to read these. We're going to start reading some reviews to give you guys a little extra context. Uh, This person named John from Louisiana said, Roback is my new favorite company. I love the feel of their polos. I wear them all of the time. I started with two and now I've bought 12. Sounds like us. For golf, going out to friends' houses or just hanging in the backyard, you can find me wearing one of their polos. That's just polos, right? Yeah. So guys, hit the link in our show notes. The link is always in our social accounts too, at the par train, always linked in our bio. You click on that link, you get yourself 15% off your first rowback shirt. If you've already bought rowback stuff from us, keep buying it using that link. Um, It helps us continue working with rowback. It shows that you guys are listening. It shows that you guys are enjoying it. Um, But the discount is for first time buyers only. Keep that in mind. And new stuff is coming out, I think, in a couple, in a week or so. Um, some new styles and some things are getting restocked. So keep checking back, rollback.com. Check the link in our bio. Make sure you click from there. No promo code needed. You've got to click that link. Okay. Stephen Cox, rules official uh, on the PJ Tour, yeah. senior tournament director. Big shout out to Mike Winehouse for hooking this up and introducing us to Stephen. Uh, I really loved yeah, yeah. this episode. I think this Lovely. is a little bit different than anything we've ever done, Matt. Uh, we debated I agree. rule changes. We debated red versus white stakes. We heard some amazing stories about him getting chewed out by Jordan Spieth and working with Bryson <laughs> and even course setups, how they, why they need to go to a course two years before a tour event and how they decide to set it up. For an event, a lot of interesting stuff. I didn't know what tour players or what amateurs, you know, how can you use the rules to your advantage? Um, what to look out for uh, in terms of future, you know, uh, rule changes, you know, coming down the pipeline. 
And, um, you know, and he even got a pace of play talk. Uh, that was really, really interesting. Yeah, definitely stay to the end. Pace of play is towards the end. Um, if you guys aren't currently following us, uh, again, at the par train, give us a follow on all the platforms socially. And guys, I hope that these episodes, um, we don't say this often, but, you know, we genuinely do this podcast to help you with your game. And so all these messages and DMs and tweets we're getting about how, you know, our mental game episodes have helped you with your game or this instructor has kind of made you think about your swing differently. That's why we do it. And so all we ask in return is to subscribe and give us a review. Um, pretty easy win-win relationship we have here, right? So if you're enjoying this, give us, make sure you're subscribed. It helps us move up the ranks so we can keep doing this for you. And uh, we love doing it. So hope you guys stay well, keep chugging and enjoy the ride out there. First, I want to start you off with a little football, Stephen. I hear you're a Jaguars fan and uh, Urban Meyer is coming to Jacksonville. What are your thoughts and how many wins do you think Urban can produce for uh, the Jags? thought you were going to start with a football question in my native tongue and land. I thought, wow, he's <laughs> going to start off with a, with an English football question. That's cool. Real football, right? <laughs> I'd like to talk about my Premier League team and how I'm doing in the league right now. We can talk about that too. The whole Jags question. Um, no, we, we can't. <laughs> hey, look, we, we uh, firstly, I'm excited. I've learned a lot since I've come over here about American football, American sports. You know, when I was a kid growing up, we had one game a week and that was the Sunday night game at, I think it's like eight o'clock or eight 30. So you'd tune in at um, five hours in the UK and you know, you'd, I always had a Monday morning lecture at nine o'clock at university and I'd walk in there and the, the you know, the tutor, I think it was like corporate marketing or something like that. Was, and I'd be half asleep during the lecture and he had no idea that we spent half the night watching American football. That was it. If you didn't, of course your facilities as a student back when I was a student, you didn't have, the, the ability to re- record the game or anything so um it was uh it was one game a week and let's just say i've learned an awful lot about american football since i've come over here You've, i've had to learn very quickly about that particularly the college sports side of it as well but we, we are super excited about everything that uh, that is jaguars football we're you know we're, we're, it's been a it's been a rough ride since we had that run uh, three probably three years ago whenever it was um and you know with you know, with a potentially a new quarterback coming into town and and uh, an urban coming to town, it, it's it's just the lift that the team needed. Um, now uh, we've got some room in the salary cap, and we've got some some really exact you know exciting opportunities with with other draft picks. So let's hope we can be smart and and choose carefully, and and some of these picks that you know really start to pay up down the line, but. Uh, the, the energy and excitement in, in the city is is there to be seen after those recent announcements, for sure. Yeah, it's funny, Stephen. I was telling Matt off air before the show. You know, I grew up in St. Louis, and we didn't have a team um, when I was younger. The Rams came uh, later, but uh, when the Jags started, my first NFL hat was actually the Jaguars because you know it was kind of this cool like teal and gold logo and it was a brand new team and it's like all right i guess i'm gonna join the jack so i actually have pictures of me as a kid wearing a jaguars hat which is funny um once a jacks fan always a jacks fan yeah so are you gonna make a prediction or are you passing on the win total 
Oh, that's that would be tough. I would like to think that we can sort of break even. You know, yeah. I mean, I know it sounds not, it doesn't sound very a lofty uh, goal, but we we've had some rough seasons um, coming out of a one-win season. I think if we can get to eight and eight in our first year and then build upon that, similar to the you know the, like the Browns have done. I mean, obviously, I'd like a little bit of yeah. a quick transition, but um, if we can maybe get to eight and eight in our first year and then build upon that, I think that would be a good start. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's definitely possible. Better times coming in Jacksonville. Um, Stevens, thanks for coming on the show. We um, we posed a couple questions to our followers about maybe what they'd like us to ask you. In this famous rules question of why still can we not get a drop out of a sand-filled divot? We've seen a lot of rule changes lately, and we're going to talk about some of those. But help us understand that one and give us our listeners some context. <laughs> well, I think there's, I mean, I, I get asked this question an awful lot. And I, we I think figured. There's two, uh, and you can argue it. And this is something that we're not probably going to be arguing until the rules get changed. But we, we, it's the nature of an outside sport that, you know, just because you hit it in the fairway, that doesn't always guarantee you a good lie. And, um, you know, I know it is incredibly frustrating that you, when you hit it in the fairway, you find it different. But that, that, unfortunately, is the nature of our sport. Similar in a similar vein that, you know, I know this is a frustration, certainly in the modern day game, but if you hit the ball in the fairway and you've got, you know, mud or other items attached to your ball that you can't clean, um, which which obviously then has a, has a an opportunity to do to, to affect the flight of the ball. And and then from a pure rules mechanic standpoint, and I think this is where I have a bit of a hang up with it, is that. At what point does a divot cease to be a divot? You know, you know the the, the changes in nineteen that kicked in, and, and you only have to look at them. There are so few penalties that are being applied now, within within certainly in the elite level game, that you know it's very much cleaned up a lot of these grey areas. And and for us, uh, there's so many irregularity of, of surfaces in fairways that. You know, I suspect that if we started relieving from divots, then at some point there's going to be a crossover between what was a divot and what is now not a divot. And I, I suspect that any sort of depression, um, thin area of ground could very easily be argued. I certainly as a player would argue that, hey, I, this, this, was, this is a divot. You can clearly see that's a divot as opposed to a divot that has sufficiently recovered not to warrant relief. So, you know, it just opens up a bit of a can of worms. But that's that's my sort of general take on it to your point there could be you could there could be just a tad of sand in a divot right and then as a player you can go make that argument right it just opens up a whole new conversation yeah and i think there's so there's so that i mean obviously divots are so prevalent mm-hmm. as well and um but i, I look i, I fully yeah. understand that it is frustrating it's, it's a, you know it's a frustrating thing when you hit a, hit a great shot and you, you don't get rewarded for it so, Stephen, you mentioned you get asked that question a lot. I was just curious, as a rules official, senior tournament director, um, how often do your friends text you golf rules questions? Is it like a weekly you know thing the, where the, the you're the source of truth? <laughs> the, do you know the person who texts me the most is my wife, believe it or not. <laughs> and she's a golfer. But my middle daughter, I've got three daughters, and my middle daughter is really keen, and um, she plays in, uh, there's a great little tour, uh, North Florida Junior Golf Tour, and if I was, a, I mean, when I was growing up, we, we had a nice little, you know, it was back in the day, it was the counties in, in England, and that's how you played your golf, and they had a good little junior organization, but there was no tour as such. The parents, as you'd expect, can't get involved, but she sees things going on, and 
she'll be texting me saying, "Hey, uh, what, what, what?" I'm like, "Sweetheart, I'm I'm, I'm trying to trying to conduct the you know the BMW Championship or whatever here, and uh, and you know you're answering a query from your wife at the same time about what's going on in your junior golfer. So she's probably the worst, but I'll, I'll occasionally get you know either friends back home who are trying to settle a debate they played out they've had a 18 holes of golf something's gone on and then all of a sudden one of your mates after about three or four beers will say oh hey look i'm going to, I'm going to shoot the guy who's going to be the definitive answer on this one <laughs> generally speaking if they don't respond that means they've got it wrong if they respond quickly that means they were they were right in the argument so that's interesting Stephen. and you brought up your daughter playing in, in junior golf um so i grew up playing um competitively since i was very little and we all carried usj rule books in our bags as junior players i think obviously the idea behind those little pocketbooks the idea behind that was well for junior younger kids to learn the rules but and also to figure out the rules you know of a situation but it seemed like and i thought it was very helpful looking back and that whole idea of carrying around your book kind of phased out we don't see it anymore and I guess, does it even still exist? And well, the player's edition, yeah. which is a scaled down version of what, you know, what we would, you know, what we would carry out on tour or sure. you know, if you down to the, you know, if you got your documentary stuff, the full rules are from the USGA or RNA, but there is a, there is a slightly scale and it's, it's a nice little pocket edition, which can even go in your back pocket or, you know, more often it'll just sit in your golf bag. And, but still there's, it's quite comprehensive still. So it is right. for, certainly for a kid, it's very daunting to look at that. And I mean, they've got no idea where to look or where to start. Right. And, um, you know, they, as much as the new code is, is put into different language to make it easier as a moving away from, you know, I hate to say it, but lawyer words and talk and sure. yeah, man, I try to put it into a little bit more into layman's terms to you know, use words, which are a little bit easier to understand. But, you know, for a kid of 13 and 14, you know, it's, it is unfortunately just like you and I learn the rules. You're learning it from the people you're playing with. You're learning by right. mistakes, unfortunately. Right. And, um, and as much as, you know, you, you'll try and work with kids in, in, in different environments, there's, it's, it's a trickle effect. There's only so much that, uh, that, that, that can be taken in at any one point. So, Stephen, what's the most common rule most people get wrong? And that could be amateurs or pros. It's up to you. Oh goodness me! I mean, it's really difficult to get things wrong now under the new under the new code. Um, I, th- I think probably um, identification of a golf ball. Mm. Um, you know, again, we modified that in nineteen. You know, back in the old old days, it used to be you used to mark. Um, you can't, uh, you know, you wouldn't permit it to clean, or you can clean to the extent necessary, but. Um, but you, you, and you also need to inform your, you know, your opponent, your fellow competitor that you were doing so. Well, we sort of modified that a little bit to say, look, you know, we don't, we don't really need you to, although it's good etiquette and best practice to inform your playing, you know, playing partner that you're going to lift it, but, um, the rules still require you to mark it. I think casual water is another one, which is so often abused as well. You know, people start stamping around and pressing their foot on the ground and hey i got water coming up here well that's just again that's not the mechanics of the way that that rule works that's a great point so you know you see it i mean we we have that uh, argument at tall level as well you know guys say casual water here well let's just go take your stance is it visible before 
no well let's let's go take your stance and let's take your stance and let's get settled and is the ball is, is, is it visible no all right you're playing away right and we have slightly different standards for you know where the ball is sitting and where the player is standing as well which is it gets a little bit more confusing but um so often you'll a little bit of water will be coming up when they press their foot down and then it's right okay i'm going to take relief and get it to a nicer spot yeah so uh, but i think i think the the, the identification certainly across the board in you know all levels not necessarily it doesn't really happen in elite level golf but certainly across social golf is people just pick it up yeah some rules are more important than others what about a rule that amateurs can take advantage of the most as currently written the most important change for me um or a couple of changes was um i, I never understood the principles behind penalizing a player for moving his ball while searching for it Never understood the dynamics behind that. You know, there's you. You're looking for your ball. Who's who's most interested in looking for your ball? It's you, right? The player. Mm-hmm. You'd be looking for your ball, and then in a long rough or in a, or in a bush or whatever, and then and then, uh, well, who got penalised for for moving that ball? The player while he was searching for it. So what inevitably happened on the old rules is the player would sort of cease and back off and be you know really really careful, and it sort of defeated the object. And um, we had so many incredibly unfair situations where players were penalised for, particularly in the long rough, standing on their golf ball. I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. But um, it sort of never really made sense. Now, of course, under the rules, if a player is searching for it um, and you know he causes that ball to move, you know, in search, you know, just hey, just no worries, put it back, no problem, and just you know proceed onward. I can remember we were at Plainfield, I think it was in the. I think it was back in the Barclays days. And um, so I can't remember, it's a par five, which goes out to the far end of course. And this was pre, pre the changes. And Jordan Spieth had hit it into this. He wanted had gone for the green too. And it's like a ditch and, he, and it was a penalty area. And it was very heavily grassed, you know, long fescue grasses. And he was searching for it. You know, he, he was one of those sort of ones where, you might get lucky and you could just play it out of there. And um, I wasn't there, but uh, Mark Carnival was following that group for um, PJ Tour Radio. And Jordan stepped on his ball while searching for it and, you know, in long rough. And then because of the line and everything, proceeded to, you know, proceeded under the Woodhouse rule, didn't play it. So I'm on the next hole and, and, and Carney comes over and he says, hey, um, Hey, Coxie, it's a, if you stand on your golf ball, is that like, what, what, what's the deal with that? And so, you know, I said, you know, talk, talk me through the dynamics and, you know, how it, how it all played out. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, unfortunately in this, you know, in that situation, he's, he's likely to have moved the ball downwards, cause the ball to move, and he would incur the penalty of one stroke and then have to replace it. And then if you subsequently wish to take relief from the penalty area, then, you know, he would need to, he would do that for an additional penalty. Well, I said, well, I've just looked at his scorecard. He, Jordan, I don't think he's, he knows that. He just proceeded to take relief, you know, on the penalty. So I'm like, okay, this is Friday. And he's like two out of the cut, trying to make the cut, two out of the cut. So I'm like, okay, now I've got a dilemma as an official. Do you wait or do you tell him? I'm like, well, Friday in a cut, I can't, I haven't got a chance to wait. So I, We'll start walking down the fairway with Michael and anytime that we peel inside the ropes is usually it's like, okay, what, what do you want? You know, unless they're out of position and they know it's coming. But so he's, I said, Hey, just 
you walk me through what happened the last hole, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was looking for a ball, stood on it, and then I couldn't play it. So, and I said, I know, anyway, I just said, look, I, you're not going to like the sound of this, but it looks like you stood on the ball and you caused it to move. And on that basis, you're going to get a penalty stroke. And then you're going to obviously incur your, your other penalty, which you have added to your score by proceeding under the penalty area rule. But I said, but we can talk more about this when you when you come into the scoring area. And he snapped back at me and he said, yeah, that's exactly where we should have handled it. Which, you know, it's not uncommon that, you know, you enter a player's domain, it may be a very passive sport, but don't believe me, these guys are incredibly focused in what they're doing. And I think that's very missed. You know, you, you know these physical sports, you see it there firsthand when you goal. These guys are incredibly focused in what they're doing. You know, you're an official. If you interject yourself into their world, then, you know, beware. So I said, hey, I get it, totally get it. Um, you know, and then obviously he was very frustrated, missed the cut. And, and it was only afterwards that we sat down and I said, Hey, you understand why I had no choice, but to come in and address this situation. And she said, can you imagine the situation, the fallout, if you'd have birdied two coming in, made the cut on the number. And I walked into scoring and said, Hey, by the way, yeah, we're going to tag another one on. You're going to miss the cut by one. The first question he's going to ask is, why, why didn't you tell me that? Why wouldn't you? You can't win. You can't win. And it's one of those really, really awkward situations that you don't want to have to do. But that's where, you know, sometimes you've got to be street smart. Sometimes we'll we'll go in there and inform the player. And I'm sure you've heard the likes of Slugger White say before, you know, John Rahm, I think, at Muirfield. You know, he chose chose not to say anything until he'd come in. I didn't have that privilege at, at that particular situation with Jordan. I had to tell him because he was grinding to make the cut. Um, that's just that's just the way it is. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting. That's a similar scenario to what happened with DJ. It was at Oakmont, I believe, right? Um, where the ball moved, and he was coming in to win his first major. And I believe he wasn't told. No, they went out and, and told him, right? But that was a big thing as well of whether. Well, or we not- have the whole again. You talk about changes for us and my world. And speeds of greens and balling and, and all that. I mean, that was the certainly for us on tour as officials, it was the worst case scenario for us. I mean, the, the whole Jordan, the whole um, Dustin situation was well, we've ruled this way. It was Mark Newell, who was the, 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 the chairman of the, the rules committee at the time, he'd ruled no penalty at the time and then subsequently it was reviewed on tv and we're like oh i think the, the guys there were like oh hold on we might want to take another look at this so and then i think they alerted him that there may be a penalty but they could but they wanted, wanted dustin to be able to see it when it came in well now we're into this dilemma and we left the player hanging and you know that that they had no choice but to tell him because they didn't know how it was going to play out down the stretch but you know, when you, it's never a great thing to leave that, to leave the players hanging with, with some degree of uncertainty. I mean, that's in an ideal world, you know, golf allows us to take our time. We can continue playing and review a situation and then retrospectively come back and actually either take the penalty away or for that matter, just add it on if, if after the consultation, but to leave it as hanging as long as that, was not ideal and i think we, i think we all within the game recognized that but 
In terms of a rules change, that was just such a huge move for us because we were getting so many green speeds were so quick and 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 you know quite close to the line and you know players were doing nothing really nothing particularly when you get out on the west coast and you're operating with power and your greens and, and you know any sort of little you know in the you know they're not really it's just little you know irregularity of surface it just can call the ball you know cause the ball to move the player really does he doesn't need to do anything Right. But he was getting handcuffed and tagged with penalty strokes unnecessarily, and he, and and it was just so unfair. And so when we when we introduced the the rule of you know uh, an accidental movement of the potting green was no penalty. It was a that was a big change for for us. Again, when the greens are slower and they're not moving so much, then it wasn't so much of a big issue. But still, you know, if you're foolish and you accidentally just step backwards and you step on your golf ball in amateur golf, you know, hey, no worries. You're on the potting green. Just go ahead and replace it. No penalty if it was accidental. So that was a, re- I mean, for us on tour, that was a that was a big change. Jordan, I didn't get off to a great start. He's a lovely guy. I love him to bits. Stephen, as you talk about good changes versus bad changes, also curious to get your thoughts on the influence of uh, replay and digital media. I think we've seen a lot in the last several years where people are calling in, people are tweeting in. We've seen this you know, exposed what many thought was cheating, um, you know, from Patrick Reed. Uh, we saw, you know, which was potentially an illegal drop with Tiger at the Masters a few years ago. Um, and then there's the people talk in the sense that, you know, we're just, that everybody can be a court armchair quarterback and send in and we're kind of losing any integrity or naturalness of uh, of the rules. And I wanted to, so wanted to get your take on how the discussions you and your colleagues have around all this. Well, let me start by saying that the game has never been more, you know, broadcasted than it is right now. Um, you know, with the evolution of PJ Tour Live and and all of these other uh, other um, platforms for you, for for someone at home to watch golf, there's right. never a greater opportunity for someone to see live golf than it is today. And I suspect that's only going to continue. Um, so there's so there's that that dilemma, you know. Before you know, twenty years ago, when you and I were, you know, watching golf, you know, it it was just a little short network window, two yeah. three hours maybe. Um, and outside of that, you're on your own. Um, that that's an issue that we face. And then I think I think and I think probably maybe a couple of years ago, I think it was. You know, within the game, we we were all generally concerned in the direction this was going. Um, so we we all got together and said, "Look, this can't continue. We can't, we can't. We've only got probably eight or nine officials on course. We can't have our eyes and ears everywhere, and it's not right that people are calling in about this, that, and the other. And and, and unfortunately, ninety percent of the stuff, ninety five percent of the stuff that were being was being called in about was, you know, was nothing so we were spending a lot of our time just following up useless useless using these calls right you know, yeah. reviewing reviewing yeah. this reviewing that and he was like this is we're, we're going down the wrong road here so we we put out um to the to the golfing world look we're not taking reviews anymore but what we will do um to combat this is we'll do a couple of things firstly we're not going to hold a player to an unusually an un, un, unusual fair standard so we brought in, um, it's almost like we call it a naked eye test. So if the guy's proceeding with good and reasonable judgment, 
if he doesn't quite get the ball when replacing back in exactly the same spot, because the reality is he's not getting it back in the same spot. You right. can try all you like, but mathematically, you're not getting it back in the same spot. It's not on the same dimple. But what is reasonable? As a, you know, and obviously with high-definition uh, cameras and everything like that, there was, you know, the broadcasters, you know, love these close-in shots. And, you know, the guy would, you know, pick it up, put the marker in, in position A, and then when he put his ball back, it wasn't quite there. And we were, you know, we were in a very, very difficult position once, you know, when we started reviewing this stuff. And so we're like, okay, we need to change the dynamics of the rule to recognize the evolution of, of uh, video technology. So uh, and a specialist in their field who's looking for things like this. So you don't need a call in. Um, so that has put all that to bed, yeah. thankfully, because it was we were going down the wrong road. And, you know, certainly our higher profile flagship players who featured very prominently on the broadcast window felt that they were being held to an unfair standard over, you know, some guys who weren't quite getting as much attention. So I think and that, that, that has really settled down both of those two two elements. Everybody thinks they're an expert, right? Calling, calling in, and it, it's usually much more. It's not as simple as that. But one thing we, days, <laughs> I've got to be honest, I miss the days of ringing because they they ring up to it's uh, such and such from such and you know such right. a place, and I've just spotted a violation, and um, right. you guys probably won't do anything about it anyway. But I just want to let you know, it's, right. I, love, I love ringing, I love ringing them back up and saying, hey, yeah, hey, uh, Mike, who's this? Hey, Stephen Cox from the PGA Tour Rules Committee. I'm just calling you back. I just want to get a little bit more. And they're like, is it, is it really you? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. It, you, you know, I hear you've been watching. Thanks for tuning in to the Players' Championship. But can you sort of just walk us through, you know, this violation that you spotted? I mean, we're just, we're all interested to hear. You've got the, you've got the whole committee here on speakerphone. And they're like, I didn't think you'd call me back. <laughs> I right, want to hear what you have to say. Steven, you know, I wonder I wonder what would have happened if people could have still called in this past season. The cameras are so good. Do you think the fans would have been able to see the fire ants under Bryson's feet <laughs> to be able to call? Do you think they would have called that in? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> oh, dear, Bryson. Uh, he's, he, I don't know how much time you spent with him. I, I really enjoy his company. I really do. But, you know, he's... You know, they're very focused on what they're doing. And uh, he's he's no different to a lot of guys out there when they get in the heat of the moment. Um, but, yeah, Ken Tackett, who had that ruling, and uh, he's uh, we, we often laugh about that particular situation for sure. All right, hang tight, guys. We're going to do a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back to the interview. Imagine Golf. Have you guys heard of this new app? It is unbelievable, guys. You guys are into the mental game. We're into the mental game. Imagine Golf is all about the mental game. Okay, they have over 100,000 students, a 4.9 star rating, thousands of reviews, and the app can be totally custom to you. It's super cool. So when you first open the app, they got a bunch of different sections to make it personal to you. So you can click on pro tips, consistency, visualizations, shot strategies, range drills, stories, Etc. We're even talking to them about maybe doing our own teaching series uh, in the future from all the lessons we've learned on the train. But anyways, guys, go to imaginegolf.com slash the par train to download the app. Make sure you use this special link because that's the way that they're tracking who downloads the app and from listening to this show in the month of January. And guess what? They're going to pick one person 
to get a brand new Scotty Cameron putter of your choice. Any Scotty Cameron up to 400 bucks, which is really most of them. Uh, but so it, it's really a no brainer. You're going to help your mental game. There's a seven day free trial. So don't worry if you're not ready to pay monthly yet. It's a small payment per month, but there's a seven day trial. Get the app at imaginegolf.com slash the park train and improve your game on and off the course with the best mental game tips from anywhere around. And you might win a new Scotty Cameron putter. Sounds like a win-win to me. Hope you guys are enjoying it out there. Enjoy the ride. And uh, let's get back to the interview. This is a simple one, but we think for some of our listeners, it's important. And can you talk about the thought process? And this may go back a bit, red stakes versus yellow stakes. And we think this is an area where especially people don't always get right on the golf course, especially yellow. But, you know, Evan might want to talk about white stakes too. And he thinks he gets too, maybe too penalized uh, <laughs> if he hits it, you know, if you, you know, not a crazy far offline, but he, he's got a re tee. So what, what, what for you to give some context really on, on stakes and the colors? <laughs> so yeah. I mean, so you've got um, usually generally speaking bodies of water. All right that are marked either yellow or red. Yep. And the, the nuts and bolts of it is, if, you, if it's red, you have, you have um, additional option available that you don't have when it's yellow. And that's two club lengths from where it last crossed the margin of penalty area. So in, in situations where I always use the, um, um, so if you've got a, a penalty area, which is, let's say it's the, uh, 18th of Pebble Beach, you know, the ocean to the left, which is a red penalty area. There's only one way to go. You've got, you've got to come to the right. Okay. So we're going to offer, and it's very difficult to come behind it because it's, you know, it's running lateral to the hole. So, so we're going to, you know, that player hooks it in. We're going to offer him not only back in line, keeping the point of the flag where it last crossed back in line, which is a, you know, your, your fundamental option when it's yellow. We're also going to allow that player uh, to come out to the side to measure two club lines. Um, because he can't go left. Very difficult to go left anyway. But going right will, um, will allow him to come out. Right. Um, now, there are certain holes where, it, in, my, in, my, in my opinion, it wouldn't be the best interest to mark it red. You want to keep it yellow because you want to protect the integrity of the golf hole. 17th is TPC Sawgrass. So one of the challenges that Pete, when he designed that, um, was he, he, he asked the question of the player that he wanted to navigate that water and stay on the water. That was the challenge. And if you didn't quite manage it the first time, then we'll allow you to move up probably 60, 70 yards and proceed to the ball drop. But, um, you know, that's the challenge. That's what, that's what the, the, the architect is asking of you. And um, as much as some people might think that if you fly the green and trickles over the back edge, that you should be able to drop it within two club lengths because it's marked red. You look, sorry, you've not certainly for elite level golf, you've not satisfied the requirement. There is the integrity of that golf hole provides that you navigate over water and landed on that Island green. Um, so, you know, and if you don't, then you can either re tee where you played your last stroke from, or you can go back as, as, as far as you want, keeping that point in line or in that situation, you can, you know, you go to the ball drop, but, you know, yellow, more, more often than not, yellow is, is getting 
you know, is getting used less and less because because the game wants to provide options for players. It wants to be easier. And, and in and in, in in if you're crossing over something and you know, like the fifteenth hole at the Masters tournament, or Augusta National, you know, generally speaking, wherever you go in there, you can always come fairway side and play it. It's a big, nice, wide fairway. It's not impractical for the player to do so. It doesn't need to be marked red. So if you spin it back off the green, just go back in line. Right. Um, generally speaking, if you've got bodies of water which run down down the side of a hole, then you're going to offer a, a, different, a different option for that, for that player. But, you know, like I say, I think most, most golf courses now are leaning to marking more things red than they are. They are yellow. Hopefully that was a no, satisfactory explanation. I've got a little bit long-winded on you, but it's nice no, to have it's context. Very, it's very good. Very good context. Yeah, let's well, let's talk about white for a second, Stephen, because I think this is probably I think the red and yellow among amateurs creates probably the most confusion, right? A lot of beginner golfers, they have no idea the difference and they usually have to ask the the more avid golfer in the group if they have one. But white is interesting because I think it's the most penalizing for amateur golfers and teeing three off the tee all day is no way to score and it it drives up your score real quick and i think a lot of amateurs on the flip side will say oh well i don't know you know they probably hit less provisionals and it's more about all right well we'll just drop up there so it's the question of why for because i know i feel like i've heard this debate a lot recently whether it's been officially or just amongst you know my peers and people like me but it it almost seems like people want to just have red stakes everywhere and you take where it went out, you take your distance, you speed up, you're hitting three from the rough versus from the tree and you play that way. Maybe talk about that and what the consequences would be if we took out white stakes, what would happen? Well, I, again, I think, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the penalties for it's not just a one stroke penalty, is it? It's, I mean, you're getting penalized twice because you're hitting it again and you're also getting the additional penalty. So um, and I, that, that's, that, that, that is the penalty for, you know, one of the fundamentals is that we want you to keep that, that, that ball on a golf course per se. Um, and if you don't, then you, you're going to, you know, you're going to unfortunately be, be sort of for it. But um, I think on a lot of, a lot of courses nowadays, they two things are happening. Firstly, that with again with the rules changes to to allow people to keep scoring, because I mean if if you and I are out there playing and, and you hit a decent tee shot and it's up there down the left hand side, and you don't realize there's a boundary up there, um, and you get up there and you think, damn, I've now got to you know walk back 250, 300 yards back to the tee. You know the reality is you're just going to drop one right there, right? And that's what's happening. And I think the game understood that. So, uh, but it didn't really have any mechanism to provide a score, particularly with the new handicapping, um, uh, you know, requirements that have just been brought in, people posting scores and everything like that. So um, they're now brought in a local rule, which, which most clubs have implemented, whereby it still allows that player to legitimately put a score together. He's still going to get penalized for dropping right there. But the, the, within the rule book, if you look in the model local rules under the out of bounds section, there's a model local rule which covers that, a player which allows a player to do that. Now, we're not going to do it at elite level, obviously, but, you know, for just regular, you know, club golf, you know, most, if not all clubs have, 
have uh, implemented it if they have and i would encourage them to take a closer look at that rule because it's really good and and i think on a lot certainly on the, the tournaments that my my um you know my daughter plays in they do exactly what what you guys have just been talking about there just to, again to keep play moving Speed up. yeah and you know irrespective of whether it's marked red or yellow or red or white um that they'll play every white is red because they want the kids to you know to succeed and they want to keep playing moving so um and i think all these different committees are all adapting in different ways to try and uh you know to try and make the game slightly easier and, and palatable for for the average golfer but, yeah. but steven to your to your point earlier about protecting the architecture protecting the boundary setup you know if it's a par five and i've and i'm 240 out and i got water in front of the green and no out of bounds i'm gonna hit a three one if i go in the water i can still make par i'm 240 out maybe there's no water but there's out of bounds left of the green like street it's gonna it's gonna mess with my mind right yes. i'm yeah. and it, it, it really and so i think there's a pureness there and and you know well the, i think if you took let's take the 17th andrews right which yeah, is a fairly, fairly iconic golf hole mm -hmm. and i doubled and it. make that red <laughs> I think Martin Slumbers would be probably who's listening to this returning. Maybe I suggest that to him the next time I see him. But if we, oh if, I think that the whole fundamentals and dynamic of that golf hole would change if we made it red. You know that, that because yeah. it's it's a fairly scary tee shot. You've got to oh, slip it left to right, or you've got to cut the corner, and all of a sudden, you know, you it becomes a such a less punishing tee shot if it's marked red than yellow. Or the, 18 at Carnoustie, right? 18 yeah, at Carnoustie, that, right? That is Not a bounce off the green. No question. That is very much in play. That's a tough hole, whether it be from the tee or from the second shot. You know, and um, and these these elements, when you've got boundaries so close, they they are again yeah. they're fundamental parts of of the design and makeup of certain golf holes. I, I think we. It's a good. It's an interesting debate, and especially for the level of golf, but. I think more even amateur golfers know what's in, know what the situation is, know the stakes, and that's going to affect how you think, right? And just yeah. you, you got to go execute, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes you're going to man up there and hit a, a great shot. Um, other times, you know, you've got to you you know, there's a strategic element to it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to take the shot on. I'm going to lay up short right and maybe just get up and down. Yeah. So, Stephen, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about course setup. Because I actually didn't know, and part of the research for this interview, I didn't know that rules officials help set up course, courses for tournaments. And I know, I don't know if that's always been a part of being a rules official or if that's a part of your new role as a senior tournament director. Maybe you can clear that up for us just personally. But um, I know you go to a course year plus before an event gets there. And I think most people talk about course setup with the U.S. Open. That's overly talked about there, but it's not really talked about at a regular tour event. So I'm curious, you know, let's let's go to a year prior, right? If you go to a year prior, let's say Torrey Pines, because I used to live in San Diego. I'd play there all the time. You go to Torrey and you're there a year before. Walk us through that week. What, what are you looking at? Are you deciding things like a U.S. Open would, where it's rough length, or are you looking at where hazards should be? I mean, how much does that really change year to year? What, what's different year to year? Well, let's um, 
Let's let's talk about uh, one of the events that I've, I've worked on uh, fairly recently, and that was Olympia Fields for the BMW Championship, where Ram hold that putt across the green. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a new venue, and that's the, one of the beauties of the BMW Championship that it moves around, so you get that, that, that renewed energy. But one of the challenges is that you are sort of somewhat reinventing the footprint. And unlike the Players' Championship, which is at the same venue every single year, Tory's a little bit the same. Um, the architectural changes that you're making to those golf courses year on year are obviously going to be significantly less than you move when you move around to a different venue that hasn't probably hosted a tour event in a long time. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that we don't have a whole catalog of, of items for the players championship that we would like to do going forward. Cause we do, we've got a great master planning list. Um, and that's not to say Tory hasn't either, but, um, generally speaking they're going to be making little little changes and tweaks to fairway widths and all that sort of stuff um certainly with if if the likes of the usga come in over a regular tour event the chances are they're going to probably um you know just tighten a few landing areas and 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 that sort of because that's 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 the makeup of what they do they they want it to be the you know the, the toughest test but so olympia fields is a really good example because we hadn't played there um on tour for an awful for an awful long time the last time we'd really played a pro event there i believe was, was it, i can't remember us open i think jim maybe maybe jim, one. jim Furyk, yeah jim um so it'd been an awful long time um and you know when we done when we did the facilities agreement with with the wga and the club um probably about three or four years in advance because that's really what it takes um because you can't just make fundamental wholesale wholesale changes to fairway widths and adding bunkers and and um and doing and getting the agronomics right as well that does you can't just do that overnight it takes a long time to 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 get that done and um so you're working with these clubs uh probably maybe two years out two years plus out because it's not you know you can't just go in there and to these you know historic golf clubs and the same with Caves Valley that we're playing there this year. I mean, that's a Fazio. You know, you want to go in there and make changes. And we've made a lot of changes at Caves. You don't just go in there and say, hey, you just want to make these changes. You know, although we have an internal design team at, at, at uh, the PGA Tour, you're always constantly working with the, the, the retained club architect and Caves, it's Fazio and Fazio's team. Um, and then uh, the same, we had the same similar situation at, at uh, Olympia Fields. Where you're working with a retained club architect to to formulate formulate a plan that is going to be a, you know of interest because the last thing you want to do is go ahead make make all these changes and then and then when you've left you know blow it up as soon as you've left and that's the last thing we want. Um, so I work we work with a club there, in leading in couple of years narrowing a few fairways here, putting strategically putting in some bunkers and getting the agronomics right. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a process, you know, for example, caves this year where we're playing in August, we've only just finished and they've been going at it for a couple of years now, making changes and, and they've done an awful lot of work. And, uh, this is all, all the behind the scenes stuff that really nobody ever sees, you know, and, and, and there's a, not, it's not just me, there's a team. We have a, you know, I say that we have our own tour agronomy department who work with the on-course superintendent provide them with 
know, wealth of resources available and how to go about structuring the volunteer programs, the type of agronomics that they're going to need to do to, to get the greens firm and fast like we want them to do without checking out and um, making sure that, you know, we've got the right grass types in, in certain areas and, you know, the sand is of the right um, quality and it has sufficient drainage. And, you know, we're always trying to protect ourselves for the worst case scenarios. Um, you know, and it takes an awful lot of time and effort and expense for the clubs to get this right. Um, and, you know, time is obviously not on our side in, in a lot of these cases. And then as you move closer, uh, you know, you're into tournament week and that's when, and then that's when, uh, then that's when we really do take over. I mean, I, it is a bit of an illusion, isn't it? People say, Oh, I thought the superintendent set the holes and the, well, no, <laughs> that's not what it is. I mean, you know, our team, are, you know, for something like the BMW Championship, we'll assign someone who sets up the back, the front nine and someone who sets up the back nine. And that's their responsibility for choosing the whole locations and the T settings for that day. We don't do it in advance. We'll have an indication or an idea in terms of where they'll go on that particular green and what tees we'll use and what tees we'll save. Um, but really, until we see the, the forecast leaning in um, day to day, um, probably Monday, Tuesday, we'll start to formulate a bit of a plan of attack in terms of, you know, where we're going to go and and um, which which whole location fits which particular day because of the weather and you know it's they'll have a little matrix designed and 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 that you know the, the worst thing you can do is handcuff yourself into a particular whole location and try and force it in on the wrong on the wrong day when the wind's not you know working sure. in your face. Now some some. Uh, some holes, you know, at some tournaments, you'll see traditional hole locations. Like, for example, you know, it's players' championship, you know full well that on Sunday you're going to see that flag on 17 over on that little right, right lower shelf. Um, and the chances are that, uh, you know, other tournaments, whether it be the Masters tournament, they'll have that flag middle left on Sunday. Um, but, uh, you know, the guys do, generally speaking, they do a really nice really nice job in setting up um do we set it up as hard as we possibly can no we don't you know we're very much uh in the entertainment industry uh we, we'll we'll set it up to be exciting we'll we'll there's certain whole locations on the certain on, on certain greens which may well play a lot harder but we'll discount those because we like a you know a location on the front right shelf which has a backstop behind it and the guys can fly it in and the ball gets to the shelf and it'll trickle by next to hole and chances are the guy may have a chance of making it and the crowd will get excited as a poster stuffing it in the back corner and nobody can get to it and so you know there's the element of that we we sacrifice score a little bit because you know, our job in my opinion is to we, we're there to provide the, a platform for our greatest players to showcase their talents yeah, and sure. where, where we as organizers have come on, on stock is that if we, if we handcuff them to such an extent, then we're probably going to have egg on our face. And we, yeah, we can all remember situations, whether it be on tour or with other organizations, when we've walked away and said, yeah, you know what? We didn't probably get that right. Um, well, how do you allow the athletes to perform? What's your baseline, Stephen? Because, like, do you guys have certain levels of you know obviously green speed is green speed they got to be at a certain speed to be tour level i get that but when it comes to like fairway width 
and bunkering and tees and distances, it seems like the U.S. Open has a very specific goal, right? Par or above. Where I'm curious, what do you guys root in two years ahead? I wouldn't even know where to start in regards to the changes they need to make to get an event ready. Is it just the balancing of entertainment mixed with challenge and you just have to use your best judgment of where that is? Or what do you root yourself into when you make those suggestions? So I'm going to answer that that question in a couple of ways. I think that the first thing I'd say is that we are trying, we, we recognize that we've got the best players in the world. And we do need to challenge them. We're trying to find the best golfer for that particular given week. And you know, when we come to a facility, architecturally, it's probably it's pretty much laid out there for you. So you don't want to start forcing the issue. I've never been a great fan. And we as a company are not really that um, in favor of turning fives into fours. Um, because, you know, a crooked stick was a good example when we played there. Um, four or five years ago for the BMW Championship. You know, it was past 72. You know, when Pete laid that out, the ninth hole on the 14th hole, I think it was, with a big kidney-shaped green. and They were both fives. Now, they are still short fives, but their green complexes are really there as fives rather than as just long fours. And, and you know, we obviously had the debate as to whether you, whether you changed it to a past 70. And I was like, no, we're not going to do that. Pete laid it out as a 72 and we're going to play it as a 72. And I accept that they're going to be hitting, you know, in, in some cases, mid, mid, mid irons into a par five, but it's a, both greens, are, you know, one's small and one's got a lot of tilt to it. And, and, and we're going to play it out and I'll sacrifice, I'll sacrifice score. Cause I'm going to ask you, so we all, we all watch kid, you know, growing up, we all watch golf. What, what is, Name me a, a tournament that you that you can remember watching as a kid that was iconic. Can you remember one? What what which particular tournament really stands out, or a shot, or whatever stands out for you? I mean, it's easy to say the Masters. I I always found the British. I mean, you can't really beat St Andrews. But let's right. say the Masters. Any any particular Masters? Probably 05. Who won that? Forgive me. Tiger, Tiger when he made the chip, the chip. on sixteen. Chip in. Yeah. What was the winning score? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. You don't know? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You don't remember yeah. the 05 Masters for the winning score. You remember the 05 Ma- Masters for those iconic memories that, of, of him chipping in at 16. Yeah. That's, that, that's the point that I try. I mean, look, I'm very, very focused on score, and I, and I get it. You know, a lot of these clubs don't want to see their golf course taken up. Um, but we are here to create positive memories. And that tournament was remembered, not because Tiger won at, you know, 14, 15, 16 under. He won because he played unbelievable golf and he won right. a shot that will, will forever be in our, in our history. Score is just a mechanism to determine, you know, one over another at any given point in time, whether you're on the first hole or on the 18th hole. So don't, don't, get, don't beat yourself up about the fact that you know, 18 under is going to win your golf tournament. Mother sure. nature is the biggest dictator on score than anything. We had, what I think, I think six under one at four under or six under one at Olympia Fields. I was just going to say this, Stephen. I, I live in Chicago and after Olympia, I saw Jim Furyk shoot eight under in 2003. 
That's because it was very wet that week. It didn't dry out till Sunday and the scores were low. But it put us, you know, this, and like you're kind of getting to this, this like unnecessary sting on Olympia Fields as a U.S. Open setup. And one, I think they were, <laughs> you know, happy to see it play tougher. You know, and I think it's also because Conway and Medina have played a little on the easier side when you think of Chicago courses recently. So just. Medina, what yeah. a great facility that is. Oh, yeah. Amazing. But. We had, I mean, you, you, I'm sure you were there. Awful weather, awful weather. When they played, the place played soft. Now, if you, right. I don't care what that golf, what what golf course it is. If it's right. playing soft, then a couple of things happen. Firstly, ball doesn't release on fairways, so right. if you hit it in the fairway, it stays in the fairway, and you can put the you can put a flag anywhere with these guys. They can clean the ball and they can fly it. They can stop it. It doesn't matter now. On the flip side, we had an incredible run of weather at Olympia. We had fantastic agronomics at Olympia in the fact that we pushed the envelope there into realms that on an, any other given normal week, the club would not have entertained. Mm. And Mother Nature allowed us to do some things at Olympia, which was were terrific. And that, that was for the first couple of days, let me tell you. It was, was all you wanted to have. It was like, I can't remember, I think, I don't know who was leading, maybe at one under, I think. Hideki oh, was yeah. there at maybe one under. And we actually, to be honest with you, between you and I, we had to back off a little bit. Yeah, no, I know. I think it, there was a lot of U.S. Open talk. This what? is but they, really... You know what? I can remember Leash. Leash called me to score. He, he, he scored. He he'd absolutely got it handed to him. I think he shot like 79 or whatever. Yeah. He left scoring, and then he came back and he said, hey, who do I need to talk to about setup? Which usually is not a good thing. I'm like, okay. And leash, you know what leash like is just yeah. I mean, you can't get or find a better nicer bloke than Mark yeah. Lee, let me tell you, folks. He is just an awesome yeah. guy. He he's leashman said, Can you just tell everybody that was fantastic out there? Hmm. It's absolutely given it to yeah. me out there. I loved every minute of it, and I just I just wasn't good enough out there today. And and you I, don't as hear a that result, I shot 79. Often. No, yeah. you don't, you don't it's hear very that. refreshing. But some guys, some guys, you know, they'll complain and that it's too hard. It's like Tiger. Yeah. In my experience, I have never, never heard Tiger ever complain that that golf course is too hard. Mm. Never. Yeah. That's, Doesn't, you that's know, cool. he, he, he plays the golf course. It's he another... plays the course as it's set up. And, I'm sure there's times he's wanted golf courses to be harder, but he's never complained that golf courses too hard. Totally. What, one other thing I quickly I wanted to ask you, I think it gets talked about a lot. When we compare the Corn Ferry Tour to the PGA Tour, very oftentimes you see low, such low scores on the Corn Ferry Tour. One of the reasons is so many of the players out there are just as good as the PGA Tour players. But if you had to kind of narrow it down, the reason, is it because of the rough length? Would you say is just just it's not as penalizing on Corn Ferry versus PGA Tour? Mm, I've got to be honest. I haven't done a comparison on rough heights. I know what our rough heights are on the PGA Tour. Yeah, week to week, because I mean that's something that we're looking at right now in terms of. Um, it's it's funny how just going off on a slight tangent. It's amazing how that changes. You know, we we'll we look at all of our whatever it's 48 tournaments and we'll we'll do a comparison to, yeah. just to ensure that we're not getting cookie cuts you know 
you know, some it's amazing how these things go in ebbs and flows. You know, ten years ago, guys were saying there was too much rough, and then sort of eased off a little bit. And now, you know, the sort of the feeling about the membership is, oh, we, hold on a minute, we, we need to have a little bit more off again. So it's the ebbs and flows of that are, I think, are interesting. Um, but I, I don't quite know what, um, what, how their their sort of rough heights stack up because I don't work an awful lot of corn fairy sure. corn. I've got to be honest. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right. The quality now across the board on the corn ferry tour has never been greater than it is that is right now. And you can, uh, you know, I mean, these guys when they come over to up to us, it used to be sort of like a like a little period where they took time feed yeah. and yeah. now they're off and running. They come out right. here and there's like no. I mean, look at Scott Scotty Scheffler. Right, he's. I mean, he's like <laughs> adjusted so quickly. Top ten every week. It seems oh. like. <laughs> Yeah, he's a great player. I, I, I well, here's, I mean, I, our resources obviously on the PJ Tour are considerably different to, um, to the Corn Ferry Tour. I mean, what yeah. we're doing at Caves Valley, for example, in the and the money that we're spending to prepare and get the golf course ready, and you know, we just can we're we're, we're afforded luxuries that that often aren't um, afforded on the on the Corn Ferry Tour. And I think that's probably yeah. it more than anything. Um, and I think the sacrifices potentially that uh, some of these clubs make on the PGA Tour are slightly greater than the Corn Ferry Tour. And um, yeah, um, I'm just curious. Yeah, just curious. Yeah. You know, just to kind of see the differences. What are your thoughts? So, Stephen, we got one last question for you, and then we'll get you out of here. A few minutes over, but we know you're waiting for your COVID test. So, uh, <laughs> so maybe we'll get a few extra from you. But so. If you could make one new rule or change an existing rule tomorrow, maybe it's a shot clock, maybe it's not. What would it be and why? Well, we have got a new pace policy, which kicked in January the 1st. And um, you know, that, that will, that, that's a good thing for us. I don't know. I, I think there's still a – golf's never been a speed sport. It's never been a race. But – there is no question if you look at the likes of Rory, particularly Brooks, BJ, those guys prove that golf can be played at the very, very highest level, but in a timely manner. And being out there on a regular basis, it is incredibly frustrating to see, you know, golf not being played in a timely manner. Um, no, I, I get it. They're trying to win golf tournaments and they're trying to, you know, the, the, the money that they're playing for now is, is phenomenal and, and the pressure has never been greater to, to succeed. And, um, but it, it, it never ceases to amaze me. The likes of Rory and, and, and Brooks that, you know, they, they, they have their number and they're ready to go and they hit their right. shot. And I commend, I, I, I have so much respect for those guys that do that as opposed to just the ones that, you know, anybody can hit a shot quickly when it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. But True. the ones that are, that are the, uh, who are, who are out there week to week contending and doing it in a timely manner, I have ultimate respect for. And um, I wish a lot, a lot more about the younger generation would look to, to those players and say, it can be done. It, it really can be done. You've just got to figure out a, a mechanism to make that work, whether it be just making, 
decisions. Sometimes we can, in all aspects of our life, we can overcomplicate it, can't we? Um, so that's the, that's the sort of the pace of play question. Um, now, that's not to say that there aren't changes coming down the pipeline, because there are. We've got, we're working behind the scenes constantly on making amendments and clarifications to certain things, tying up loopholes, which we come across, um, not on a weekly basis, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll tie up loose ends within, with the, with the governing bodies to ensure that things are taken care of going forward. Um, but, um, I think rules of golf, golf, we're in a really, really good place right now, um, going forward. So. I don't really have too too much to complain about. I've got to be honest; things are things yeah. are pretty good right now. I just there's been a lot I, of good changes. I, I I would just I can't wait for us to get fans back. Um, I think you can again. You see that with our with our the biggest stars; they feed off the energy of the of the fans. And I can't I can't wait for the day that you know our stadium and stand, uh, stands and uh, are full again and. And, that, and we get that buzz around the property that we that we all enjoy. And I, I'm not even inside the ropes. I'm I'm just a passive observer, just watching. And um, whether it be for the folks at, at home or for the folk, you know, for the players inside the ropes, I just it can't come, come you know soon enough. Yeah, yeah. I think we'd echo the same as fans. Totally so, agree. Stephen, thanks so much for coming on. I think there's a lot of interesting yeah. stuff that people are going to love about this. And you know, if you guys want to follow Stephen, I believe it's Stephen. PH uh, Cox 27 on Twitter and PJ tour rules on Twitter is probably another good one uh, for people to follow any, uh, any other places we should send people. No, they're the two main ones uh, from a rules perspective. Um, just one little, one little shout out. Uh, we lost uh, Jeff Haley. Um, we talked a little bit about agronomy and, and uh, the you know the superintendents that are, that are out there putting on, and we, we are so lucky in terms of the quality that we experience week to week in terms of the agronomics of our golf courses. We're so lucky, and uh, I talked about the the tour agronomy department, and and we have one. We'll have one this week at Amex, and and um, Jeff was supposed to be here. He he passed away. He lives in Jacksonville. He passed away at the age of fifty eight. Very suddenly had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So that was a big shock for for our world, and you know. Our thoughts and prayers are with are with him, but uh, he he's going to be a big loss for uh, for our agronomy department, and uh, we were we were sad to to hear that news. So I don't want to finish on a on a on a, on no. a point, but I just wanted okay. to throw that out there. But guys, look, I I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Maybe we can do this again soon, and we'll hopefully have some some more topics when we get this uh, you know return to spectators plan going back end of the year, and it'll be fun to to reconnect. Be great to Would have you that. back on. Would love that. Thanks, Thanks Stephen. Have a good week and uh, hopefully talk to you soon. All right. You got it, guys. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take care.